90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, just moving towards um, my birthday and the end of the semester. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeehaw. I'm still yeah, in my think... 30s. It's okay. <laughs> I, I think everybody's in that uh, hang on till the end of the semester mode right now. Man, it is. Like, as soon as you get to April, it's just, yeah, yeah, it's terrible. So, but what makes me so upset is that everybody's like, oh, it's going to be the summer. I get to slow down. And then I have to ramp up for field camp. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me a little, it's that little extra kick in the, you know, kick in the rear that's kind of like, oh. Okay, you guys have fun. I'll be over here right. working. <laughs> uh, speaking of working, uh, you're going to have to be working pretty hard here, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we are even deeper in the throes of doing this uh, this move now because we have got our house sold. Yay! <laughs> I mean, that's like, it's great, but also it's like, oh, God, no. <laughs> now comes everything else, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh so, it, I mean, that's going to be the story of my life for the next few months and then doing mm-hmm. some traveling to do some customer installs, which is actually going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Great. That will be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's pretty sad when that's your stress relief, right? <laughs> yeah. And I am also looking forward to being back in the plains for severe weather season this year. Oh, yeah. It's, um, it's already gotten really exciting. Let me tell you, we had a hailstorm where there were golf ball size hails and hails <laughs> well they are hails right there's a bunch of them not just one and yeah. um <laughs> you would have thought on the television that 900 tornadoes had touched down <laughs> <laughs> yeah television coverage has been pretty uh it just gets intense. worse yes it just gets worse and worse we have every time there's a thunderstorm we have chasers on it now even if it's like a derecho or something, chasers on it all over it. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. But you'll uh, you'll see soon enough. I saw one news station had chasers out for uh, the snow a few oh, yes. weeks ago. Yes. We had one guy. <laughs> that guy was trying so hard to make ice form on this bridge. It was amazing. He was like trying to scoot around and be like, it's it's getting. No, it's not dangerous. The road is fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really wish he would have said that because it was very clear. There was no ice happening, and it was hilarious that this poor guy had to sit out there at, you know, 36 degrees. <laughs> well, I, w- I was really laughing. Uh, one of the grad students that I'd had the, the privilege of teaching a Python class to a while back, uh, he was out chasing in Texas, which they did have some pretty uh, significant tornadoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the storms that he was on, it wasn't a great looking storm. It was, it was high based and not outstanding. And yeah. uh, he said, if this produces, I'll eat a shoe. <laughs> and three oh. minutes later, there was a tornado on the ground. Ah, 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 ah. So where are those pictures? <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Famous last words, huh? I guess so. Three minutes later. That's impressive. That storm said, hold my beer. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh-huh. But in one of the uh, chasers that was also on, I believe it was that storm or a storm on the same day, uh, had a photo of some hail from the storm with one of my hail rulers, and it made it into the SBC report. Yes! Oh, 
man, that's awesome. I wanted it to hail here so bad. Like I had it ready and out and ready to go. <laughs> and we didn't get any hail. It was just to the north of us. I was so sad. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> I'll get it. I, it's it's ready, though. It's on the refrigerator, ready for some weather season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Nice. That's nice. Yeah. So I think this week we're going to continue what we started last week, right? And talk some more about impact craters. Oh, right. I figured we're both under, you know, a lot of stress because it's that time of year for me and it's that time of moving season for you. So we might as well talk about large things hitting us and exploding. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so last week we talked about the megascopic details of impact craters. So if you're going to look for one on like a satellite image or something like that, um, what are you going to look for? And none of those mag- megascopic details are actually definitive of impact craters. Um, the peak ring structures we talked about, those get pretty close because that's pretty hard to make any other way. So that's very compelling evidence for having a crater, but it's also not definitive. And actually, there's only one definitive thing we're going to talk about today because most of the definitive things are microscopic. But the macroscopic, that's sort of the hand samples slash rock size, there's a a lot to talk about in terms of outcrops and craters. Oh, yeah. And just to refresh folks' memory, uh, if they're wanting to know what can look like an impact but isn't, it's these cryptovolcanic structures, which are weird volcano-related things that aren't igneous. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I, I, I love it. It seems like that's a really old word that's is in the literature, but people still talk about them. And yeah, it's like some outgassing thing, but you don't have igneous rocks, which I think is, I don't even know where that happens. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, where does that happen? Yeah, I think cryptovolcanic structures was coined as a sort of a catch-all for we don't quite get this part yet. Right, exactly. Like, we don't have that definitive impact crater evidence. So, But those are definitely um, one of the things that you need this definitive evidence so you don't get into a big old fight at a <laughs> at any of the conferences about. Um, so the megascopic was a good start, but now we need to go down to this outcrop scale to look at this stuff. And when we talk about impact-related rocks, what we're talking about is mostly Brescia. Which is fancy for really crushed up rock that was made solid again. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so pointy pieces <laughs> that um, that got broken up and then just what you said, got re-cemented together and are now turned into one big rock, even though some of them are not very well cemented. Um, we I think to- Brecht is the Latin for pointy pieces, actually, right? <laughs> Obviously. I thought everybody <laughs> knew that. <laughs> Like, I'm trying to make this accessible. (laughs) Um, Not to be confused with conglomerates, which are roundy pieces. (laughs) To a conglomerate would be you had a bunch of things that were transported by, say, a river process and deposited. Right, exactly. So they traveled a long way. And especially when we talk about these impact brushes, because fault brushes are something I know you talk a lot about or have talked a lot about, which you'll get to talk about again. (laughs) (laughs) So those don't move very far, right? You crush those rocks up almost in situ and that's what a lot of these brushes that we're going to talk about with these impact rocks are um and we mentioned them a little bit last week when we were talking about Chicxulub which is the big huge crater that is at the um Cretaceous Paleogene boundary that helped kill the dinosaurs um 
it has a lot of brush in it. So we're gonna talk about these different types of brushes that you could get, because there's actually quite a lot. Right, uh, so I mean, the basic principle of formation of a breccia is there is some very acute stress event that causes rock to fracture. Right. Uh, so, you know, dropping your, your CD on the tile floor in the 90s uh, made a CD brescia. <laughs> the saddest of the brescias. <laughs> yeah. And th- that is, is not really definitive because it could come from many other sources, like you mentioned, default brescia, uh, which is you get a lot of stress that is released and you get dynamic movement and shock waves traveling through the rock as a fault ruptures in an earthquake process and breaks up that rock. Right, exactly. And obviously, if you're going to hit a rock with a bolide, a comet, or a meteor, that is an ac- acute stress event. <laughs> oh, yes. You, you definitely have some shockwaves there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things that when I think about impact brushes is that you might see or you're going to want to look for more than one of these to occur at a place. And I think that makes it more definitive if you can say, oh, look, we've got these, you know, four different types of brushes. And in this one location, we can identify, you know, two or three of them. I think that makes your case for impact a lot stronger, even though each of these alone is not quite definitive. Yeah. And so the first one would be the ejecta blanket. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think about this as being a brescia, but it is, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess it is as much as, you know, a bunch of volcanic bombs make a brescia. Right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So, so you've got uh, the, the thing hits a bunch of pieces of rock. And when we say pieces of rock, we're not talking dust. We're talking things the size of houses if it's a large impact. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, are lofted. Yeah. And you get these giant broken off pieces that travel and settle back down onto the surface Mm -hmm. and eventually get buried and cemented. Right. And so you can see this really well on other solar system bodies. So if you're looking at Mars, say, because we like to look at Mars, um, especially as an Earth analog, you got an impact crater and then around that rim, you know, it's like a little kid drew a, like if you splash a paintball on something, right? You get all that splatter mark around it. That's what the ejecta blanket is. It's that splatter mark. And in this case, the splatter mark is sometimes made up of house or larger sized pieces of sediment. And it's basically outside the rim of the crater. (laughs) Sediment. (laughs) (laughs) What? House size sediment? It's the same thing. (laughs) And so it's, around that outside of the crater and just like you said that becomes lithified and can become a brescia it's really hard to see on earth because we've got all these pesky erosional processes that start to work on those sediments right away that's why it's best seen in other solar system bodies that don't have our erosional problems (laughs) yeah and if you want to think of this another way right so you've got a, a mud puddle and you drop a rock in it you you have your own bolide impact the water acts as a fluid, just like air acts as a fluid. And so you get all of this stuff that will be lofted and make these really pretty turbulent vortex patterns and then settle back down. 
Right. And if if you have, and this isn't even just for the big impacts, actually, you see these in a lot of simple impacts. It has more to do with how brittle the rock is that it's impacting. Part of this ejecta blanket can be these cool things called overturned flaps. Yeah. So overturned, that means in the geologic sense anyway, that we're going to see a reversing of the layer ordering. So you would be getting younger as you ascend the geologic column because time, as far as we know, runs in one direction. Right. And then suddenly you start getting older again. Right. So it's like, think about, you're moving. You'll, you'll get this. So think about a box, right? <laughs> <laughs> and if you were to open up the box, right? If you, if, in your example, you know, the oldest parts of the box are at the bottom. If you're talking about rocks, then they go younger to the top. And then you open up the flaps and just lay them on the outside of that box. Now you've inverted that stratigraphy. Those are the overturned flaps. And so the same thing can happen around the edge of a crater. Like I said, this doesn't just happen on the big ones. It can happen on the small ones too. You see this really clearly in Meteor Crater in Arizona, which is just a small one kilometer diameter crater it's only like fifty thousand years old and it's got these perfect overturned flaps so your stratigraphy goes oldest to youngest and then there's a little blob that's youngest to oldest (laughs) and those flapped out with that ejecta blanket during the impact yeah it's kind of fun to think of rock as being that ductile (laughs) because it's it's had so much energy put into it i know and these are huge slabs that are overturned it's so cool and it just goes to that whole like it's all the same physics you know air water whatever it's all just different time scales so it's very interesting yep everything's a spring if you press on it hard enough just like in engineering anything can be a fuse Uh, to a mechanical uh, engineer uh, that's great yes exactly yeah so the ejector blanket's really fun but it's really hard to see on earth and you really have to put it together with something else um one of these other impact diagnostic features because no one's going to believe this ejective blanket business <laughs> in my in my experience <laughs> right and so that's really just the next type which is a fallback breccia and i i have to confess i've never really got it straight in my mind what the difference between the ejective blanket and the fallback breccia actually is Okay, so to me, and this is all still, I want to preface this because I'm sure if we have people that are very impact people, they've got a paper that defines it some way differently. These terms are pretty loosely defined, and there have been several papers that have tried to define them in perpetuity, but it's like herding cats, right? Like, no (laughs) one's going to agree with everything that gets said, but in my mind, right? and how my work from my master's thesis reads. (laughs) So the ejecta blanket is outside the impact and the fallback brescia is kind of related to the ejecta blanket, but it's all the stuff that kind of makes it sort of inside the crater during that same sort of time period that the stuff's getting blown out. Does that make sense? So it, it lands back inside. Is it different in you know, grain size, or is it really the same process? It's just the stuff that doesn't make it out. Yeah, it's the same process. It's just the stuff that doesn't make it out. When we talk about brushes, and this just isn't for impacts, it's for brushes in general, um, there are sort of two kinds. You can have a polymicked brusha or a monomicked brusha. So a polymicked brusha are brushiated chunks of 
all the different units that are around there that are involved in whatever event you have. And a monomict Brescia is just you're looking at one bed that's been brecciated, and so all the clasts within there are all the same thing. So the ejecta blanket is a polymict Brescia. So is the fallback Brescia. Okay, so they're going to be cutting through more than one unit. It, could there be a monomict if we have a, a small impact where it just cuts through one geologic unit? Right, exactly, which would be pretty hard to prove that any of those brushes were impact-related if they were all monomict brushes. Um, yeah, there are other ways, which we'll get to more next week and a little bit this week, too. But this is, um, so one of the impact craters that I worked on for my master's degree was in Missouri, and it was the um, Wobbleo impact crater. And it had this fallback brescia. And we had a quarry in the middle that was all this deformed limestone. And then the fallback brescia was sort of around, it was real close to the rim. This is where the ejecta blanket fallback brescia thing they're real closely related. So it was close to the radial drainage pattern, but it was made up of a whole bunch of sandstones that you didn't see inside the crater because they'd been eroded away probably. But you could see hmm. that it was messed up pieces of limestone and sandstone in that fallback brush. Huh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it would be pretty hard to have an impact small enough to only cut one unit and actually be preserved. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you had like a big, thick carbonate unit, yeah, sure. That could totally happen. But yeah. <laughs> okay. So well, we've got these polymict or multiple rock type brushes. Some of them get ejected out and they're called ejected blankets. Some of those pieces fall back into the crater and they're called fallback brushes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But and then we get into more word soup. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So, and this is where the whole, like, lines between these are not exactly clear. It's really clear when you draw a diagram. It's very unclear when you go out to an impact crater and try to make these delineations, right? Um, <clears throat> so, sometimes people call the fallback brush this thing called a swayvite. Although I don't really think of the fallback brushes like that. I think a fallback brush is brushiated, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's annihilated by shock processes. Maybe a little bit, but not a lot. And so suavides generally, they're also a polymict brush, but they have a lot of melt in them. Right. And other than being a really cool geologic word. Yes. <laughs> uh, so this, this indicates that this got hot. Right. Which we expected an impact. We are imparting a lot of energy and we actually get uh, air temperature rises and large impact events, lots of melt and large events, vaporization in some events. Mm -hmm. Vaporization of not just rocks and water, but animals too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a great scientific paper that describes this in disgusting detail. <laughs> I think we've actually done that as a fun paper way yeah, we, back. We did all, yeah. We'll make sure that's... That's linked on the website when I get to fixing all those fun paper links. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so the suavite, which it just sounds like a melty word, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Like it's like a melty, flowy word. And that's exactly what this is. So you've got this polymic brush, but it has this melt texture. And sometimes you'll see glass 
in there, which makes total sense. Um, sometimes you see a lot of these shock features and metamorphosed grains, which we're going to talk about next week when we talk about the microscopic part of impact craters. Um, but this rock looks real messed up. Yes. <laughs> and Swayvite is getting very close to a definitive impact characteristic. And you really get Swayvites in the bigger impact craters because this takes a lot of energy, right, to melt and flow rock. <laughs> Right, but there are other geologic processes that can melt rock. Yeah, like cryptovolcanic stuff, right? <laughs> well, like faults. Look, we'll get to your little fault melties here in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, swayvite is what people, some people call like a melt blanket. Okay, so it's going to be something that is the entirety of the inside of the crater. So a lot of these, when you talk about the brushes that they see in the drill cores from Chicxulub or um, the Ries Crater in Germany is very famous for its swayvite. It's a very, it's like a melt blanket. That's what they call it. So if that makes more sense versus like a different kind of melty thing. But we're not talking about like pure melt that's getting ejected here because to be swayvite, it only has to be 1% melt. Right, so that's been one of those things that is just a nomenclature suggestion for swayvite, and this is to help distinguish swayvite from fallback brusha because you don't have to have melt in a fallback brusha. That's sort of the stuff on top that can get reworked and stuff. It's this melty thing that's way down in there that takes like the brunt of the shock. Basically, it doesn't get blown out, um, and so it just sits there and gets melty and metamorphosed. Right. Yeah. And so a lot of these pictures, you know, you can look up Swayvite, especially the Reese Crater. It's been super studied, and whenever you say Swayvite in any impact paper, it always goes back and says something about the Reese Crater um, because of this large melt sheet or melt blanket in there that has lots of vitrified you know, glass and these really shattered clasps of the brescia and then all these shock features. Yeah, so like what are some of the specific shock features? Well, those are things we're going to talk about in the microscopic, John, because you can't see them in hand sample size. Oh, uh, okay, okay. So in, in your work on Wobbolo, uh, you didn't see any melt, right? Correct. We didn't see any melt. Um, uh, you've been to... Missouri your wife is from right near there there's right. hardly any rocks right so <laughs> there's yes. a lot of foliage it was really um Kevin Evans at um oh gosh is it Missouri State that's in Springfield now I think um they changed the name of the university there but that's who we were working with and he saw this radial drainage pattern and then got to looking and found this um this quarry and the rocks were really deformed highly highly deformed limestones but we didn't find any melt but we did hmm. find some of these shock features so eh, it's still kind of up in the air whether wobble is an impact crater but i don't see what could have made this crazy deformation hmm. all right Mm-hmm. but we'll get to that next week <laughs> Yeah, I'll say you haven't convinced me yet, but I'm not going to convince you. I barely convinced myself. 
this, there folks, was, is how you do a PhD. It's absolutely true. <laughs> Don't act like you know anything. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's the point. Um, it, but it was definitely brushated. The fallback brusher there was real cool. <laughs> but the right, sway so, by it would be even better. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah, if, if you could have got some melt, that would be much more definitive. Mm-hmm. That's true. But you can get even more melty features, right? If you've got a, a really large impact, you can get complete melting. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can. And that would definitely... I'm not going to say it was definitely definitive, but that would be really hard to do in another thing. And you get these things called melt brushes. Different from suavite, because suavite could still be polymicked. Um, but these are sort of like monomicked. They're made from the same rock. They're basically just shattered in place and sometimes melted. So this is stuff you might see like at the very bottom of a crater. Right. So this would be below your fallback breccia, below your suavite. And right. then you get this layer of, I mean, it could be basically glass even. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if there's any that have like significantly thick layers of glass. Do you know of any? I don't know of any. My best guess is a lot of the melt stuff gets ejected. Right. And glass doesn't stick around very long in the yeah. geologic timescale um, portion of things. It's not very stable. It, well, it's stable, but it actually erodes very easily, breaks down into clays and stuff. So that's probably my guess is, too, is de-vitrification is the process for that, is that a lot of it gets gets converted fairly quickly right that's my guess <laughs> and so why why are these you said they are monomicked why would they be monomicked instead of polymicked i think that these are okay now this is just this is me conjecturing because i couldn't find a lot on like what the difference between a melt brush and like a suavite was um but my conjecture is is because these are sort of the ones that are formed at the very bottom so if you're gonna impact something right you blow out your ejecta blanket you rework a lot of the rocks on the top in the fallback brescia then you melt a bunch of all of that stuff too and then at the very bottom you're not going to mobilize all those rocks because your energy has to dissipate somewhere right so you're not going to mobilize them but you're definitely still going to break them and so that's why i say monomic it's formed in place it doesn't move around would this be down like at the basement Level? That's what, well, I mean, it depends on how big your crater is, right? Right. Because, I okay. mean, you could have... So, we do have monomicked brushes in the Wobbolo crater. So, mm-hmm. if you've had trouble finding things, did you find those in a quarry? Because a lot of times you have to drill to find stuff like this. Um, it was a pretty big quarry. And we saw it... We um, actually saw it outside the quarry in... Um, in a road cut and it was just this Hmm. like sometimes people call them dilation brushes too so within limestones you can sort of create brushes in place due to sort of fluid flow so it was questionable whether it was a brusha that was made from impact or if it was a brusha made from fluid flow which could have been from an impact so our monobic brusha still had a lot of questions to go along with it but it was really strange looking you know, it was just a, just a brush, all made up of the same class. You could tell they didn't go anywhere, really. It just happened right there in place. So in my, in my mind, 
the melt brushes at the very bottom are monomic just because you're not mobilizing the clasps. Okay. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. It'd be hard to intermix layers when your energy's dissipating. Right, exactly. Like, you, you've, it's got to fall off somewhere, right? So maybe that is the basement in most cases, but lots of times these impact in really thick carbonate units. So, you know, your melt brushes are still, and your basement is still essentially carbonate rock so it just depends on the size of your impact and your target rocks okay fair but to me those monomic brushes that's hard to make right because you usually think of a brush you know incorporating a lot of different stuff so i don't know if that's extremely indicative but if you mix monomic brushes and melt within that monomic brush that seems pretty diagnostic of an impact yeah i'm still not going to say that that's impossible for a fault process Fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, John, tell us about fault-related brushes. They have a ridiculous name, too. <laughs> they do, but I also want to point out that just saying that it's indicative of fault process doesn't mean it's not related to an impact, because That's an impact exactly is going to cause right. a lot of fault processes. Exactly right. And now you've got to worry about like what your fault processes look like on the large scale, because that's when you can start to say, oh, this is a fault process that's just normal tectonic stresses versus, oh, look at these circular faults. <laughs> that might be right. from an impact crater. <laughs> yeah. We, we have a lot, of, uh, a lot of normal faulting all going down towards one point. Hmm. Somebody yeah. just stepped there. It's fine. <laughs> so these uh, fault-related melts, which can be of many different sizes, are called pseudotachylite. I hate this word so much. Oh, it's so much fun to say, and nobody can spell it. Oh, no. And I couldn't believe I didn't get a little, you must spell this thing. <laughs> in our, or some uh, people in our say notes. pseudotachylite instead of pseudotachylite. I definitely err and say pseudotachylite a lot. This is like the word stylolites. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Everybody says stylolites, but nope, there's that extra L in there. So in here, there's this extra YL thing. So pseudotachylite. Right. I'd never hear anybody say it that way. <laughs> I, so, I, yeah. <laughs> it's a fun word. Mm-hmm. And so pseudo is fake, right? <laughs> yes. So <laughs> this is, you have a, a melt that looks like it might be from one origin, but it's actually not. It's uh, not volcanic or related to anything like that. It's frictional. Which makes sense, right? I mean, faults, there's a lot of stress that's built up there, right? You start to break that stuff and then move it. Why wouldn't you melt it? Yeah, and I love that there's an apparatus called Shiva at <laughs> INGV in Rome. And I, I've seen this machine in action uh, when I was over there doing some experiments. And they take a, a piece of rock and another piece of rock that has been... Uh, sort of bold out in the middle so that they have a ring contact area. Mm-hmm. And this machine presses them together with normal stresses simulating that of a fault at rupture. Mm-hmm. And then it spins them to simulate the movement of the fault. Right. And so they can do this with granite, dissimilar rocks, similar rocks, uh, sandstones, whatever they want to put in there. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> there's some really cool video of them doing this with a basalt and it makes it you get a thin layer of melt that forms and then it starts hurling globs of molten rock <gasps> out of the machine. Oh 
my gosh. Can we do this at OU? Don't we have one of these things? Uh, you have a ring shear. I don't know. It should be able to get to stresses and speeds to do melt. I don't know that I've seen a melt video, but I'm sure they've done it. Ugh, I don't know if I'm going to be allowed to do that. I'm totally breaking in there and sticking some basalt uh, in there. That's awesome. I know that they've done some things where they saw that process, uh, or that the fault zone got very hot because they had all kinds of weird things happen to carbonate. Oh, yeah, that's right. I do remember that. Mm. that uh, is, so, so I think they actually, actually did melt that. It actually got hot enough, and it started throwing off little blobs. Yeah, and there's even infrared video of it. It's really cool. So uh, if that was if that was an impact crater, those little blobs would be called microtectites. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> See, there's a name for little impact melt blobs, and they look just like you would imagine a basalt looking. They're just like little black balls of magma and stuff, and they're called microtectites. Mm-hmm. I didn't put that in here, so I'm going to throw it which, in now. Which also looks similar to things that volcanoes spit out and that Absolutely. turn into things that look like cow patties, but out of rock. Absolutely. <laughs> so you make this fault melt. How how common are pseudotaculites? Pretty. Uh, Pretty common on the microscopic scale or on the macroscopic? Like, Can I see these at most faults? Um, most faults might be a stretch. Depends on the fault and how old it is. Uh, as you said, a lot of these things erode pretty fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've seen pictures of pseudotaculite veins that are everywhere from, you know, microns thick. You needed a microscope to see it to meters. <laughs> wow. Wow. Seriously. What kind of fault do you get a meter scale pseudotaculite on? Uh, Something that's under a lot of stress and moves very fast. Oh my gosh, that's impressive. (laughs) But yeah, you're right. Like nature hates glass, right? So devitrification happens very quickly. Yeah, and you know, you don't think about friction generating a lot of heat. But okay, rub your hands together, right? So you're generating heat just with the surface roughness of your skin and your measly little muscles. I'm pushing your hands together. Speak for yourself, man. My hands are on we're fire. Talking, <laughs> we're talking about big angular pieces of rock that are moving past each other at upwards of 30 feet a second. Uh, you and your English units. Well, you know, I have to have to throw in some, some Yankee units every now and then. <laughs> so true. Uh, uh, so 10 meters awesome. a second. And uh, they're under a lot of normal stress they have anywhere between five and 15 kilometers of rock sitting on top of them that's cool (laughs) and so they're under all this stress they move and getting melt is gonna happen i mean rock does not melt at that high of a temperature it really doesn't i think that surprises people like 800 celsius you can melt a rock that's not that much (laughs) no i mean you, you need a blowtorch and a I can yeah <laughs> to yeah. do that yeah <laughs> uh so this does happen even in the lab when i was working with my little bitty you know glass beads on a 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter fault mm-hmm. we, we didn't get melt but moving them at rates of you know, 10 microns a second so small scale lower stress moving at 10 microns a second uh, I did a lot of measurements of temperature rise in the whole system, like watching the metal that I was using to press on these things heat up. Wow, really? Yeah. That's crazy. So friction 
does a pretty good job of turning things into heat. I mean, it's what a it's waste of energy. And, what a waste of energy. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we're very lucky that when, and I know I've mentioned this on here before, when you do have a fault process occurring, only about 10% of that energy goes into shaking. Yeah, that is true. Okay. Uh, most of that energy goes into creating brushes. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and a little bit of that energy goes into melting. And there's some other processes too. Yeah, it takes a lot to break a rock. And to right. break it into lots of pointy pieces is even tougher. So you can have pseudotaculites through either fault processes or just impact mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, at a crater site. Right. And this is where you can start looking at the orientation of these false faults and these pseudotaculite veins and saying, okay, are they all dipping in one direction, like you would expect for a planar fault feature, mm-hmm. or are they all dipping towards a common center point? Right. So you've got all these radially oriented faults, or you could get even weirder, but still, still true, guys. Faults can bend. You could get these concentric ring faults. Right. It's sort of like a... It's not really a Horst and Graben structure, I guess, but it's sort of like that. Yeah, it feels like like a conical Horst and Graben, right? Right. Something like that. I'm sure some structural geologist is real bad right now, but... <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm a paleomagnetist, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and these are, I mean, you can make these. Uh, we have folks that do experimental work on impacts, and they have some cool toys too, uh, like shotguns that they load with round pieces of rock and fired at other pieces of rock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll we'll probably talk about some of those um, when we talk about the magnetic processes associated with impacts because they've done some um, work like that too, shooting little steel balls at rocks and seeing what happens. Yeah, and I mean, if you have a sandbox, you can go out with different sports balls or uh, ball bearings that you acquire from McMaster car or something and have legitimately as an adult, a very fun afternoon trying to make different (laughs) crater shapes and structures. I would get some modeling clay and ball bearings and a uh, slingshot. Ah, there you go. That sounds really fun. I'm going to write that down and I'm going to do that this week. (laughs) (laughs) It's my birthday. What are you doing? Making impact craters. <laughs> this, this sounds like a typical day in the life of a geologist. That's exactly right. <laughs> so while it would be exciting to find a pseudotaculite, I'm just going to keep saying it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's still not definitive, but there is one macroscopic thing that is absolutely definitive in impact process. It's the smoking gun, if you will. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. And these are shatter cones. And so these are, it, they're kind of cool looking. They're, they look like a birdie from badminton. <laughs> yes. But out of rock. Do. That is exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great, that's called a shuttlecock, just so you know. Sports balls. Oh. I know you don't, but those are called shuttlecocks. <laughs> Oh, I thought it was called a birdie. Okay. I mean, you know, people call it a birdie, but that's its official badminton name. Well, <laughs> I, I know badminton gets gets hated on as a sport, but I don't even play it. So. <laughs> it's legit, <laughs> and it's real hard. That's all I have to say. <laughs> but you're exactly right. So that's what it looks like. It's these little 
cones, um, and they're sort of, I don't want to say the word, the word cone in cone structure is a carbonate structure that is not this, okay? So those are two right. different things, right? It sort of looks like it. But so there are these like little cones that are stacked up and they they almost look like feathers too on a large enough scale. Um, and they're formed by this high velocity, high pressure shock wave from a bolide impact or coolly enough from a surface based nuclear weapon. Yes. <laughs> I will say I'm very curious what some some more fault dynamicists would say because as much as i love to blame everything on faults we do know that you can get super sheer rupture on faults and have shock waves preceding a rupture front now yeah mm-hmm. i mean uh, and i've had somebody get in my face and say that crypto volcanic explosions can cause shatter cones and i've heard i haven't seen but i've heard say that there are some shatter cones related to volcanic processes like real volcanic processes not these crypto volcanic processes right because really you just need something where you've got energy traveling at over the the speed of sound in the material right and kind of like point sourcey sort of stuff right right well and you know saying you just need energy traveling that's yeah <laughs> you, you need a pretty big energy source exactly and so these little things all radiate out just like the shuttlecock from one little area um, and they can form in all rock types, but these are really most easily seen in carbonate rocks because of the small grain size. So you can see these in granites and stuff, but it just, the large class that are, sorry, crystals that are in granite make it a little harder for these structures to develop. But man, there's some beautiful, beautiful shatter cones that have been impacted in these tar- uh, carbonate target rocks. They're just... I just went to um, Kentland, Indiana, which is a big impact crater there. It's very well known. And it has massive shatter cones. Um, Rich, the quarry operator there, took us out to show us these huge boulders that were like meters by meters by meters that were just chock full of shatter cones. Wow. I know. It makes me like tear up. They were so... It was so great because, you know, we found little tiny ones and he's like, come look at this. And we're all just like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, they were just beautiful. But these guys can be they're on the scale of like a few millimeters. Or I read, I also did not see a picture of this, that there is the um, there's a crater in Canada that has five meter long shatter cones. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That was my thought, too. Yeah, I'd want to see that one. Yeah. <laughs> But so these things, yeah, we've made these. We have man-made ones from nuclear test sites in the desert. Yeah, I mean, that's, you definitely get a shockwave there. Right, exactly. And I've had people come at me with these and say, oh, this is a shatter cone. When it's not, it's something like a plumose structure, which is a a rupturing feature. Um, So you can get these confused with other structural features, I feel like, until you see one. And then you're like, oh that's what that looks like well and i remember when we were out drilling in uh sort of southern colorado we found something that was very suspicious but we could never convince ourselves it was Uh uh-huh right exactly that's definitely one of the ones i was thinking about when i wrote that like this could be fault related or it certainly looks a lot like shatter cones um So I say that's one of the definitive macroscopic evidences of impact processes, but 
you got to be sure you've got a shatter cone and it's not a structural, um, just a, a normal faulting sort of process too. Right. Yeah. But those are, those are ones like, that's one of the things when people are like, I've got an impact crater and people say, have you found shatter cones? That's really the first thing that always gets thrown out there. Right. But then if we go to even smaller scales, that's where we start to get into some even more definitive things. Right. Exactly. Like the things that are only made by impact craters. But you got to wait till next week to talk about those. And we'll shoot those out of the sky, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I've already got my crypto volcanic stuff all ready to go. <laughs> yes. I, I'm going to have to do a little bit of literature work between now and next week uh, on, and see if I can dig up who coined this crypto volcanic catch all. It has to be from like the 1800s. I guarantee you it is that old. Yeah. I, I looked up a lot of these because I know we use the word dilation brescia a lot when we were talking about the monomic brescia that we saw at our impacts in Missouri. And a lot of the literature is like 50s, 40s, 50s when they talk about these things. So, right. Yeah. I I would like to see what the newest usage of the word cryptovolcanic structure is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you know I, I did hear a podcast where they were talking to someone who worked for uh, a dictionary <gasps> I think it was actually Merriam Webster said this would be a good one to put them on Ooh, that is very interesting that is true I think you could do a whole bunch of papers about that <laughs> oh yes <laughs> Tra- tracking the buzzwords of the ages in terms of geology mm-hmm yeah, or, you know, machine learning now. <laughs> uh, no, machine learning, I'm going to have to sleep on that. Oh, that's a great transition to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. <laughs> now, did you just come across this one? I just picked it out of our list, and I'm assuming you just randomly found it. I, I think so. This was a paper that I didn't have attributed to anybody. And it's also been in the list for over a year. Mm-hmm. And it's from 2015, I think. So it's been there a while. Right. And this is all about one of our favorite activities, sleep. Ah, oh, sleep. Don't have kids if you want to sleep. That's what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is called, the article is called Sleep Intensity and the Evolution of Human Cognition by Samson and Nunn, and this is in Evolutionary Anthropology. Um, these are strangely set up articles, I will say. Yes. <laughs> That's just a, yeah, just an editorial note about <laughs> about how it's set up, but we talk a lot about that kind of stuff. Well, right, because we're, we're snobs for figures and... Basically, yeah. Communication. <laughs> What I do like is there's a little box on the front page that has kind of a little little um, paragraph about each person. It's not just contact this person. It tells, like, what they're doing and their little research and stuff. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it, it does make it a little harder to attack somebody in a, a rebuttal letter. <laughs> it absolutely does. I'm like, I don't know who Samson and Nun are. And then I read this, and I'm like, oh, he's a postdoc that likes this and this. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, it's a person, which I think needs to be more in science. So I actually love this. Love yes. this idea that they do. Um, but this was a really cool article that didn't put me to sleep, um, but made me think a lot about... I think a lot about sleep because I dream a lot. 
like I am a very, I feel like I have a very active both imagination, but it also manifests in I have crazy dreams all the time and I usually remember them, which I know a lot of people don't remember their dreams, but I remember virtually everything about my dreams. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, and so it's like I've read a lot about sleep over my lifetime because I think I have very odd sleep habits. Um, and this is really interesting how sleep has to do with the evolution of humans and comparing humans to other primates and how utterly different our sleep is. Yeah, and this this really surprised me. Uh, because to me, I go, man, we spend a lot of our lives asleep. We spend right. eight hours a day asleep. This is crazy. And then I look at my dog <laughs> who spends 20 hours a day asleep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think that's just Mitzi either. I think that's most dogs. <laughs> right. And so these researchers, and I loved in the, uh, they interviewed the researcher in the New York Times. And, you know, he was talking about, well, I had to basically become nocturnal for seven months to watch primates in zoos sleep. Uh, and, he, and he said, these are, the, these are the things you do when you want a PhD badly enough. <laughs> so true. <laughs> See, this is where I thought your love of cameras and all that would come in because they say in the article, like, how much more sleep research will be coming out because we have all these cameras that are so good now that we don't have to make PhD students stay up and just watch a, an ape sleeping. Yeah, and I mean, I've even seen technologies where they're trying to estimate your pulse based on movement of your skin yeah. with a camera. That's creepy. Uh, yeah, so this would be, I think, an easier study to do now. Oh, right. Um, yeah, exactly. And they said they hope that a bunch comes out of it, which it might have. This paper, like I said, is from 2015, so maybe since then it has. But it's cool to think that sleep dealt with our evolution. And one thing they say is, you know, how different primates sleep. Um, some build platforms in the trees, right? So we slept in the trees. Then some primates now build platforms in the trees and line them with, you know, leaves and stuff to make it more comfortable. And then that basically when we came down out of the trees and slept on the ground, that was sort of a, how our sleeping patterns helped to shape our evolution. Right. And so once we got to primates that are 60 pounds and over, they generally don't sleep in the trees. That results in a pretty big... Well, the crater. <laughs> right. Uh, so they, uh, they they move to the ground. And like you said, they start making these platforms that have different materials. Uh, they've even done studies where they provided primates different. Like they gave some foam blocks and they gave some straw and some twigs. And crazy. studied the sleep quality of the different uh, bedding surfaces and found that Sure enough, they, they want to be more comfortable, and when they're on the foam, they sleep better and therefore require a little less sleep. Right, and they perform better on cognitive tests the next day if they slept on the foam, which is crazy. Right. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. And, you know, if you are in a tree, if you're an orangutan or something, you're getting woken up all the time by other orangutans, uh, snakes in the trees, storms, wind, anything so right. you have much more interrupted and segmented sleep compared to early humans that circled up around a fire and uh, took a nice cozy nap. 
Right, exactly. And so, so they say that being out in the open on the ground may have led us to have the most efficient sleep possible. So not only a short time period for sleep, but a deep sleep during that short time period. So there's kind of two parts to this, and they call it the sleep intensity hypothesis. Um, so we were, we needed a small amount of time to sleep because we didn't want to die. <laughs> and then also we need deep sleep because we wanted to be well rested. But the cool thing that I never thought about that they talk about is that that shorter amount of time for sleep is not just so you can be awake longer to make sure you don't get eaten by anything, but it's also because in the groups that we lived in, that increased time awake led to interactions that helped advance us. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, if you had a day, you know, we all say we wish we had more hours in the day now, right? Uh, (laughs) If you did, compared (laughs) to another animal that was at a similar level, you're going to have more time to try to make tools. You're going to have more time to attempt to make a language with someone. Yeah. Yeah. That is, so that time that we got because of this not just short amount of sleep, but the deep amount of sleep that we get led to these, what they call, you know, our enhanced cognitive abilities. And I, that was something I never would have thought about at all. But I mean, they did quantitative studies of the amount of sleep and the deepness of sleep. And one of the things, I don't know if you've heard about this before you read this paper, there's that weird thing like during the victorian period they did that weird midnight sleep thing (laughs) do you know what i'm talking about uh no i hadn't heard of this before right so So it's like you go to bed and then you wake up in the middle of the night and then people would like get up i don't remember what they called it there's a word for it and like people would get up and they'd like write letters and they'd go out and about like in the town (laughs) in the middle of the night and then they'd go back and they'd do their second sleep until the sun came up (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, it's really weird, and it has to do, and so this is interesting, because they talk about, you know, um, how the advent of artificial light changes the way that we react. And so I think they're, this is just me conjecturing based on my small amount of sleep research, (laughs) was that, you know, was that weird bifurcated sleep, was that more what our ancestors did, or do they do the longer sleep? that we do now and so basically these people are saying in here that the modern sleep is more indicative of probably what traditional populations did that bifurcated sleep was or polyphasic sleep phasing (laughs) is what they call it um was not really what our ancestors did they slept shorter amounts of time but deeper amount of sleep all at one time, not the weird waking up and doing two different awakened sleep periods. Right. And, you know, I, I we don't understand so much about sleep still. And they, they made a big point here about how many minutes of REM mm-hmm. we could continuously get with our current sleep pattern. And so the, there's even some thoughts that these REM cycles are when we're actually physically flushing certain chemicals out of our brain and preparing it for the next day. Yeah. How cool is that? Yeah. (laughs) That was super cool. Um, You know, you always hear, what does this mean when you dream about this and blah, 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 and how like dreaming 
is your brain's way of organizing what's happened to you and switching it from short-term memory to long-term memory. That is so fascinating to me. Like, how do we know this stuff? How do you know this is happening? This is all, you know, electrical sensors that we have now, right? So this is right up your alley. <laughs> yeah. is the, the only way we can track this stuff. But so that's your way, your brain's way of categorizing all this stuff, making it make sense, and then sticking it in the mind vault, right? Yeah, and it is, it's very puzzling to think about. And unlike you, I... I'm, and I know we all dream pretty much every night. Uh, I might remember maybe one dream a month. Oh, see, that's how my husband is. He never remembers anything. I remember everything. I have like five sleep journals that are just full of my crazy stuff. Like I'll wake up and I'll write out my dreams. It's so strange. Yeah, if I wrote mine down, I would use like a page of a moleskin a year. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Stacks of moleskins. (laughs) (laughs) Backpacks full. (laughs) Yeah, it's really strange. But it's also weird to think that maybe that categorizing and stuff has to do with that, okay, we've got extra time. We learn all these new skills. Now we have to learn how to process them. And maybe the large amount of REM that we have compared to other primates is a way that our advanced cognition processes that information. Right. So, you know, what separates us from the apes? It might be how we sleep. Yeah, exactly. And plus on this New York Times article, there's a really cute little little monkey on the picture. <laughs> yes. They, they have some adorable pictures of different animals asleep. Oh, sleeping. Oh, he's so cute. He's just grabbing his little moss pillow that he's got, and he's adorable. So, yeah, you should totally check this out. It was a very interesting read. Definitely didn't put me to sleep. <laughs> Yeah, and there's some fun correlations between like body size and mass. And, uh, of course, there are some exceptions, like a very small mouse that sleeps pretty much all the time. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't, I think they need to realize that maybe that guy just likes to sleep, right? Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's as simple as it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you would like to tell us about your sleep pattern and sleep patterns of other primates in your house, we would love to see your complete study with uh, using machine learning on infrared <laughs> vision. Put a laser uh, of in your subjects. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> so if you can do that and send those results in to us, we would be happy to share those. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Yeah, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, go ahead and tweet us your videos of you sleeping. No, don't do that. That's weird. Uh, <laughs> at, at Don't Panic Geo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. We're on the uh, Slack. You can come in there and hang out. We're on the Don't Panic channel of the Software Underground. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping us keep this thing in business. If you would like to support us, go to patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.